I'm your host, Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron. A military history podcast. This week, we're talking about the Siege of Troy. Zeus, the cloud gatherer, lord of Olympus, king of the gods, had a bit of a problem. He fancied a sea nymph named Thetis, and you probably would as well had you seen her. Hair, a black bundle of curls like a mass of floating seaweed. Skin white as sea foam itself and cheeks pink like coral. Her eyes were the same shifting shade of blue as her home, the ocean itself. The king of the gods was smitten, but there was a problem. That plague among mortals and immortals alike, prophecy. Zeus was made aware that the son of Thetis would become greater than his father. Given his personal experience with patricide, Zeus was particularly weary of stories in which a son kills or surpasses his old man. Clever as always, Zeus decided to keep her at hand but wed her off to a mortal. That way he could always circle back for a quick romp, but he'd be not in any way responsible for a son. Zeus betrothed Thetis to an aging hero king named Peleus. It was at their wedding that the seed for the destruction of the city of Troy was planted. Eris, the goddess of discord, was not a happy camper, and in fact she was pretty pissed, which was a common state for the person or god responsible for arguments and disagreements. The wedding of Thetis and Peleus was the event of the social season. Every god worth a fig would be there, and Eris had not received an invitation. Still, assuming it was a simple oversight, the small, squat goddess went to the venue on the day of the nuptials and waited in line to enter. Ahead of her were some real heavy hitters. Hera, Zeus's wife and queen, if not exactly his exclusive bedsharer. Athena Pallas, the fruit of Zeus's very mind itself and the apple of his eye, brilliant in thought, war, and strategy. And then there was Aphrodite, the finest being in the universe, curves in all the right places and pleasing perfection in every way. Eris watched as these goddesses walked through the gates without the slightest bit of hesitation, Eris tried to pull off the same air of confidence and belonging, and needless to say, she was denied. Like the saying goes, some men just want to watch the world burn, and that sentiment Eris felt very, very deeply familiar with. She took a golden apple and quickly scratched for the fairest into the beautiful bejeweled side and tossed it in among the three great goddesses ahead of her. Chaos erupted. Hera assumed that the apple, which declared itself a gift for the fairest of them all, was meant for her. Athena Pallas knew that it was for her. And Aphrodite, with the air of someone that's never questioned whether or not they were the best-looking person around, had no doubt it could only be for her. 
The initial unsure joking argument between the three turned into cutting remarks and put-downs, which in turn escalated to scratching, slapping, and hair-pulling. And of course, the next step was starting to edge towards curses and magic. Zeus just couldn't allow this to continue. The matter had to be decided, but not by him, because whichever goddess he said was fairest would be on his side forever, true. But the other two would spend eternity plotting against him for the slight. No, 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 thought Zeus. This was not good. Paris was a young herdsman in the hills of Troy, in the region known as the Troad. He was really the son of King Priam of Troy, but another one of those pesky prophecies had spooked the Trojan king, and he'd unhappily sent the baby Paris off to be killed in the hills. The man sent to do the deed couldn't bring himself to kill such a lovely baby, so he faked it and decided to raise Paris as his own. Zeus sent the three unhappy goddesses to teenage Paris and ordered them to accept his judgment as to which was indeed the fairest. Paris was a stickler for details and scrutinized all three very closely. Unable to make a decision, or just being a teenage boy with all the perverted thoughts that comes with, he bade them strip and bathe and then present themselves nude. Again, the race was too close to call. Finally, annoyed by the whole thing, or frustrated by the boy's indecision, Hera took an alternative route to victory. She chose bribery. She offered Paris power and sway over all the lands east of the Aegean, including Troy. Not one to miss a trick, Athena piped up with her offer. Brilliance in battle, wisdom beyond all others, and skill with whatever he might bend his mind to. Now, Aphrodite's offer was the smallest and seemingly the simplest. The goddess of love was as sneaky as the nature of love itself. She offered the most beautiful woman in all the world, Helen of Sparta. Paris picked with his pecker. He gave the apple to Aphrodite and in so doing won her blessing and the hate of both Hera and Athena. Paris the herdsman soon became Paris the Prince of Troy, son of King Priam, and was sent on a diplomatic mission to Sparta to firm up alliances and trade deals. In reality, though, Paris was on a secret mission to steal his prize and soon-to-be bride, the beautiful Helen. No better words have been put to paper to describe her than that her face was the face that launched a thousand ships. Wed to the powerful king of Sparta, Menelaus, brother of the even more powerful king of Mycenae, King Agamemnon, Helen was smitten with the young handsome prince from the east, and once the official business was complete, they snuck her aboard his ship and headed back to Troy. Agamemnon was not having it. His brother had been insulted in the gravest fashion, and Troy would suffer for it. As part of her dowry, Helen's father had made every suitor for her swear to protect her honor forever, even if they did not win her hand in marriage. Since she was so beautiful and had so many suitors, almost all of Greece was bound to protect her and avenge her. Agamemnon called in the favor and began pulling the forces of the various Greek kingdoms together. A failed peace 
Envoy to Troy further entrenched him in the idea that war was the only solution. The heroes of Bronze Age Greece swarmed to the banners of Agamemnon. Wily and Odysseus, stolid Nestor, awesome Ajax, Calchas the seer, and last of all, the greatest warrior of them all and the son of Peleus and Thetis, the supposedly indestructible Achilles. Twelve hundred ships from almost thirty kingdoms brought almost a hundred thousand men together, and the king of Mycenae appointed them in the direction of Mount Ida and Troy, or so he thought. Bad directions, storms, infighting over leadership roles, accidental landings and injuries, and at times a lack of wind made the trip across the Aegean a hell of a lot longer than necessary. But finally the fleet arrived on the beaches in front of Troy. A fight for the beachhead, one in which both Hector and Achilles, the two greatest warriors on either side, killed their opponents in single combat, left the Trojans spooked and fleeing back to the, the, the safety of their city walls, and the disembarking Achaeans finally in control of the beach. The next nine years, the Greeks held a loose but constant grip on the city of Troy. Her walls had been built by Poseidon and Apollo, so no mortal made weapon or stratagem could penetrate them. So long as the people of Ilium, or Troy, stayed behind the god-built walls, they would be safe, but King Priam wasn't alone or helpless. He kept in contact with allies and maintained pressure on the invaders by mounting raids and regular sorties. It wasn't much, but it was all he could do, and he needed to apply some pressure because the Achaeans, especially Ajax and Achilles, were running roughshod on the Troad. Many a city and island fell to the two fiercest Greek warriors, but as we are seeing in current events in 2022, as always, logistics and supply, the unsexy bits and bobs of war, can often decide who wins and who loses. After nine years of fighting, struggling, and missing their families, the men of Greece mutinied. Helen wasn't their wife after all, and they didn't give a damn who kept Menelaus's bed warm. All the plunder they were promised was still safely behind the Trojan walls, and they seemed no closer to it than the day they'd landed on the beaches almost a decade previously. Agamemnon used Achilles' celebrity to buy time, and somehow he found a source of wine and wheat, enough to fill the men's bellies long enough to keep them in the fight. Agamemnon couldn't get out of his own way. The daughter of a priestess of Apollo had been captured and taken as his concubine. The other, Briseis, had been given to Achilles. When the girl's father went to Agamemnon to ask for her freedom, he mocked the man. Now, Apollo was a pretty touchy god, and he wasn't a huge fan of this, and so he shot plague arrows at the army of the Achaeans. The king of Mycenae scrambled to fix things with both the girl's father and the god and stopped the plague. But since he lost a concubine to appeasing this priest of Apollo, he thought it only fair that he should take Achilles, Perseus. Well, the young warrior Phenom was not at all pleased about this arrangement, and as you can imagine, he decided to take his ball and go home. He swore he was going to sit out the rest of the fighting, and even asked if his distant relative, Zeus, would let the Trojans win, which the king of the gods decided to do. The fighting that followed was fierce and brutal. Heroes fell and gods were wounded, 
Aeneas, one of Troy's heroes, was saved by his mother, the goddess Aphrodite. Athena helped a Greek mortal wound Aphrodite and Ares, the god of war himself. But without Achilles' sword, the Achaeans stumbled, and within days their line had been pushed back to the very beaches where their ships sat. Only a push from Poseidon stopped the Trojan advance and shored up the Achaean line. Zeus gave the Trojans a little lift the following day, and the Greek ships were within danger of being burnt. But then Patroclus, in Achilles' armor, appeared and fought like the real deal, slaying Trojans by the fistful. He supercharged the Achaean army, and soon the Trojans were in danger of being destroyed under their city walls, until shining Hector, son of Priam and heir to the throne of Troy, strode forward and challenged what he thought was Achilles to single combat. The fight that followed was a close-run thing, but Patroclus was no Achilles, and soon he lay dead at Hector's feet. When the true Achilles learned of his lover, or maybe lover, uh, but definitely friend's death, he went mad with grief. Agamemnon, ever the savvy leader, saw a chance to get the warrior on his good side. He offered Achilles Briseis, and she was apparently, according to Agamemnon, unabused, and so Achilles took her back, and Agamemnon implored him to get back into the fight to avenge his fallen friend. Achilles did just that. He raged against man, God, and earth alike. Finally, he came upon the author of his misery and challenged Hector. The fight was brief. Hector was killed and then dragged mercilessly around the city walls, his body, though unchanged because of Apollo's love for him, abused and defiled in front of his family and people nonetheless. Even in victory, Achilles' rage was unabated. He dragged the body back to his tent and stewed in his hate for the Trojans. He performed Patroclus's burial rites and funeral games, and then that night received the most shocking guest. Old King Priam, led through the camp of Achaeans by Hermes himself, knelt at the feet of his son's murderer and wept while he kissed Achilles' feet. He begged, pleaded, and cried for the Greek to release his son's body back into his custody so he could at the very least ensure his trip across the Styx would be paid for. At first unmoved, the sincerity and honesty of the old man's words finally broke through and Achilles relented, allowing Priam to take Hector's body and promising a truce long enough to ensure both sides could properly bury their dead. After the peace came more war. Amazonians from the far north fought for Priam, as well as Ethiopians from the far south. In both cases, they bolstered the defenders of the city and helped keep the Achaeans at bay, but never quite broke them. Achilles, like a war machine made of bronze, mowed down men left and right. He racked up a massive kill count, so great even the gods themselves worried that he might kill too many of their little playthings. His time was up. In hot pursuit of a fleeing opponent, Achilles didn't notice as Paris, the man that had caused so much misery, knocked a poisoned arrow and let it fly. The tip slid right into Achilles' heel, the spot where his mother held him while he was being dipped into the sticks to make him impervious to weapons, and so the only weak point Achilles had. The battle for the fallen hero's body was bloody. 
Ajax stood over his friend, roaring at all challengers, and charged into the Trojan mass long enough for Odysseus to grab the limp body and carry it to safety. Tired and exhausted, the Greeks had had enough. They had been working under the impression that they needed to break the city walls to win. But the tricky king of Ithaca, Odysseus, realized that all they really needed to do was get inside the walls. So he and a friend snuck into the city and went on a little recce. While inside, they came upon a now lonely Helen, because Paris, who had started this whole mess, was now dead. He had actually been killed by an archer who fired Hercules' bow. And Helen was not just lonely, she was homesick. So she helped plot a plan to help them not only get out of the city, but to capture the city. Once outside and back in the Achaean camp, Odysseus devised a little bait-and-switch for the Trojans. One morning, ten years into the long, bloody war, the Trojans awoke to an empty beach and not a Greek in sight. But, of course, the beach wasn't entirely empty. No, there was a great wooden horse on wheels sitting smack in the middle of the road that went from the city gate to the water's edge. To the Trojans, horses were holy and sacred, so this must be some kind of peace offering from the Achaeans, they thought. They dragged the symbol of the end of hostilities to the city and brought it inside the city gates for a festival. Dancing and drinking and fornicating followed as a decade of woe washed away. Cassandra, doomed by Apollo doubly, she could see the future but was never believed, shambled through the ecstatic mayhem, shouting her warnings to the crowd, and it fell on deaf ears. Exhausted celebrants passed out or collapsed all around the city, including the skeleton guard at the gates. Out from the belly of the great wooden horse dropped one, then two, then a dozen and more Greek warriors. They ran to the different gates and opened them, turned back into the city, and started the dirty business of sacking it. Agamemnon and his horde had waited for the signal in a cove within rowing distance of the beach in front of Troy, and quickly the Achaeans raced from their ships and into the open city, and the slaughter began. Blood ran in torrents, drenched was all the earth, as Trojans and their alien helpers died. Here were men laying, quelled by bitter death, all up and down the city in their blood. Priam was killed, a ruined, weak old man, the shadow of his former glory. Cassandra was raped by Ajax the Lesser on the very altar of Athena Palace. Helen was almost killed by Menelaus in his rage, but once he looked upon her face again, he fell back in love and spared her. Hector's wife went to the man that killed Priam. The last Trojan queen went to Odysseus. The bespoiled and raving Cassandra went to cruel Agamemnon. All the treasures of Troy, be they man or gold, woman or jewel, child or cloth, were divided up among the victors and divvied out. The aged mother of the hero Theseus, though, beloved by all Greeks, was given to uh, her grandsons and spared. Antenor, the man that had saved Agamemnon and Odysseus on their failed peace mission all those years before the war began, was also spared and allowed to keep his wealth. 
Aeneas, the last of Troy's heroes, slipped away from the devastation with his father on his back, his family following, and the Palladium, the statue of Athena Palace that gave Troy her luck as a city among his baggage. At the end of the city's rape, the Greeks, like many a conqueror before and after, put Troy to the torch and went home. Now, as many of you know, that they went home and some didn't really end well and some took quite a long time to get there. Um, what I just kind of recounted to you was my own very much shortened version of the uh, kind of the facts of the Iliad and the information that we can glean from other sources that flesh out the story of the Trojan War and the, the Siege of Troy. Uh, as you know, uh, uh, the Odyssey and Odysseus takes him a long, long time to get home. Uh, Agamemnon meets a nasty little end that Cassandra actually predicted when, uh, when he took her captive. Um, Ajax the Lesser, I believe, ends up in, in a nasty way. Uh, so a lot of these characters do go on to have uh, kind of their comeuppance. And, and whether you like the Trojans or the Greeks, or it doesn't really matter to you, uh, anytime there is a siege in history, and, and clearly here in myth as well, um, when the siege is broken and the city falls, it's never, ever, ever good. It's always, almost always, there are a few, very few exceptions of um, a siege ending well for the people behind the walls. Um, I love this story. I am one of those people that believe that magic and myth and religion and superstition are not things to be scoffed at or laughed at or ridiculed. Uh, I am not personally uh, religious in any way, but I think these these are the different kind of tools that the the you know if if, if history is a artwork. Um, superstition, myth, uh, legend, they're all in there as different colors that you can use to paint that masterpiece. And I think if you neglect them, then you're limiting yourself. And it's especially important because if the people who lived through that time period believed them, then it colored your perception or their perception of the world around them. Uh, if they perceived these things to have happened, then they interacted with the world around them in a way that would be different if they didn't believe them. Uh, I think you especially see that with Homer, or which, you know, Homer is either one man who uh, wrote these, these stories down or recounted them, or a group of writers, kind of like, uh, you know, the Bible, where it's probably a, a large group of writers who are compiling notes and, and transcripts and putting this all down uh, over a long period of time. Whichever one you believe, I think that there's some debate in either direction. Um, I think it's important to understand how, how heavily the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, weighed upon the cultures that consumed them. Uh, you had... So uh, let's kind of recap roughly what uh, what the supposed facts, the unknown facts of Troy and the Trojan War. Uh, you have the late Bronze Age 
period. This is when Minoan A and Minoan B are the only uh, forms of writing that we know of. Um, and we actually, I think it's Minoan A that is deciphered, was deciphered in the 1950s, but Minoan B is still unknown. Um, so those forms of writings are the only thing that we have of at this time other than art uh, on clay or, or whatever that, uh, you know, whatever the drawings might have been on. Uh, late Bronze Period, um, you've got Greeks raiding this, what, what, what is Eastern Turkey, Anatolian region near the Dardanelles, uh, Gallipoli, um, which would have been Gallipolis, which means the beautiful city, I think. Um, it's in that region. It's not part of that. So yeah, it's in, in that region. Uh, it's not, it's on the mainland side of the Dardanelles. Um, and Troy was probably a large trading kind of, uh, nexus point. It would have been very powerful because of its position. Um, and the Greeks probably over a period of time repeatedly raided it. And the Trojan War is probably just kind of an interpretation or a condensing of what happened over, you know, decades or even centuries as the Greeks began to press outwards uh, from, from the Peloponnese. That brings us to the Greek Dark Age, the collapse of the Late Bronze Age period, and why the Trojan War is such a mystery and the Iliad might be totally myth is because we don't have any record of it. There's the, the writing uh, almost completely vanishes from, uh, from Greece at this time period. And since there's, no, uh, there's actually no account of it in any written form, we would obviously have no way of knowing whether or not this, this, these events occurred on some level. Obviously, I think most historians would agree that the gods Apollo and Ares and Aphrodite and Athena and Zeus and Poseidon were likely not on the battlefield uh, directing events or, or fighting mortals, uh, although I do love that image. Um, I would love to see a movie where that is done well um, because I think that's a, a pretty spectacular uh, could create for a pretty spectacular battle sequence. Uh, so that's where we stand kind of on the facts. We don't know exactly what happened. Uh, we do believe that there was some kind of, of, of war, uh, maybe a, a long format uh, kind of trade struggle on the Anatolian coast with the Aegean there uh, between the Mycenaeans uh, or early like kind of proto-polis Greece fighting and moving outwards from the Peloponnese. Uh, we also know that this is Bronze Age warfare, so you've got chariots, but they're not, you know, they're not the Kadesh or Megiddo-type chariots. They're more of the battle cart uh, bringing a champion fighter or a king to a particular spot on the battlefield and delivering him where he'll uh, dismount and then fight on foot. Uh, it's also Bronze Age battle in that this is a lot of champion, one-on-one, -on -one, test of skill. It's not the phalanx. It's not the developed kind of uh, orchestra or ballet that would be would would kind of describe Alexander or or even pre-Alexander Greek battles. It's much more a, a ma mass. 
kind of brawl, a melee, and, uh, you know, with a lot of individual single combat duels happening where these guys are just kind of bashing each other down with their, with their short swords or their spears uh, and just, just seeing who has the, the greater amount of skill. And that would actually play a large role in, in, in the morale and the direction of the fighting. All this is to say that the Iliad, whether it be one man or, or multiple people writing it, um, the Iliad by Homer is a incredible piece of um, of, of literature, of history, of of you know, it's a time capsule in its of itself. It's a dr- diagram. It's a drawing, and I think anytime history and mythology can blend i think we're better for it uh it's the first piece of western literature and it's probably the best you have foreshadowing you have uh, the uh, you have um flashbacks you have the structure of of every great story that's come after it has taken something from the iliad you have in those 15,000 plus lines you've got every human emotion from rage to lust love to pride happiness, joy, sadness, sorrow, uh, pain, suffering, um, elation, jealousy, everything that makes us human is in the, those are, you know, it's in those lines. Uh, and they, they convey something deep and transcendent because it's, it's also thousand, we're talking millennia upon millennia ago, human beings were very similar to what they are now. And we can see that directly through the writings of Homer and through the Iliad. Uh, we can kind of maybe take comfort in the fact that we're not that different. We haven't changed that much uh, for good or ill. I don't know. Um, I also think it's it's really important to take the time to um, give it a, a second shot. I, I read this. Uh, the Iliad was mandatory reading in high school and I was not a fan. I avoid epic poetry like the plague, but uh, but I think it's important to come back to it as you get older. I think you can maybe get a better appreciation for it. I know certainly that I do, and especially going back and kind of dabbling in it here for this and, and rewriting this uh, version and kind of playing with it a little bit was uh, much more fun than I thought it you know might be given my experience with the Iliad in the past and as you guys probably know I'm a huge fan of Dan Carlin Um, I'm sure you're all shocked to find that out and I I often find myself re-listening to different episodes in his uh, catalog and I kind of was prepping for this and I was re-listening to his King of Kings which was about the Persians and there's a, a, a quote in there, uh, which I think is a rough paraphrase job by Carlin, and so I'm going to rough paraphrase Carlin, rough paraphrasing the historian Pierre Briant, and the line was, quote, you must believe in ancient history even if it never happened, end quote. And that that really has stuck with me. I I think it's fascinating. It's such an interesting way of looking at history because Historians get so stuck in the mud about details and facts and proof and 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 all of the the little minutia that sometimes they forget the human aspect that you know 
even if this stuff didn't happen, you got to believe it did because it's all we've got. And on top of that, it changes us because the Iliad, what happened in it, the deeds that are recounted in that, the, the characters that are there, the emotions that they have, weigh heavily on the men that follow. Alexander is trying to be Achilles, uh, you know, and then Caesar is trying to be Alexander. And those two guys had such a massive effect on the world around them and then the world that came after them that if that's where they're cornerstoning their beliefs, well, then it, even if it didn't happen, it matters on a very, very um, kind of a vast level. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that there is an episode that I'll do of Cauldron that better encapsulates this sentiment that Briant had here, where, um, you know, if even if ancient ha history didn't happen, you have to believe it did. Uh, I think that the Trojan War and, and the fall of the city itself really, really encapsulates that idea. And there isn't a hell of a lot of evidence for it, and we don't know exactly what happened. The, um, uh, what's the, 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 the guy who, uh, Heinrich Schliemann, um, was the uh, kind of the crackpot uh, archaeologist that found Troy, supposedly, quote-unquote, found Troy. Um, and so, again, we have some details. There's tantalizing tidbits. Uh, there's little things that we can maybe follow and believe and 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 kind of hone in on, but there's really not much. And so all we're left with is uh, whether or not it happened doesn't really matter. It's the classic um, Who Shot Liberty Valance, and I'm stealing this from Stephen Fry's book. At the end of that, he kind of rants and raves about whether or not it, uh, the, the, the Trojan War actually happened, kind of like I'm doing now. And in it, he references who shot Liberty Valance when, uh, you know, if if when the legend when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Um, and I think that's exactly what we have here. We have a historical case of when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And uh, I think that the the Battle of Troy, the Siege of Troy, the Trojan War, no matter how much longer mankind walks this earth, you know, as long as people can read or talk or hear um, or see the Iliad and the events within the Iliad will matter on some level. All right, guys, thanks for hanging in there. Uh, a little bit longer than the ones we've had in the past, which is weird because this was maybe not even a real event. Um, but uh, I just, I was having a, f a great time with it. Uh, I know I was rambling at the end. I get excited about this stuff. So when I go off script, it probably sounds like I'm meandering and umming and all that, which I apologize. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, so I have a week off next week which is what how, the way we're going to be doing this moving forward is the ancient period is four episodes and there's a week off so I can gather research materials, do some reading, do some writing, and then we'll start up the following week with the medieval period. Uh, if you go to the social medias, we're going to be doing a, uh, you guys will vote on two episodes and I'll pick two episodes. So I'll surprise you guys with two and then you guys can pick two. Um, there the social medias are we're on facebook instagram twitter tiktok um and we are on spotify apple anywhere you can get a podcast 
go ahead and find us there. Please, please, please rate, review, subscribe, share this with friends. You know, when the episode comes out, if you could kick it out to your social medias to spread the word, uh, it would mean a lot to me. I know it's a pain in the neck, but it really does uh, help grow the show. Uh, if you haven't written a review yet, please go and do that. Even if you don't give me five stars, just, uh, you know, anything helps. So uh, I really appreciate you guys sticking in. Thank you again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.